Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University in the UK. We're talking to Jeremy about his new book, A Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021, From World Power to Question Mark, just published by Constable and Robinson, 2021. Jeremy, it's great to see you again. Congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. And I always appreciate being on this because I actually think that what the New Book Network is doing is actually taking history forward in a way that the universities are failing to do. I think all too often in the universities now, it's a matter of dogma and doctrine, of political correctness as opposed to debate. And I think one of, one, and it's also expensive. And I think one of the great things about podcasts, one of the great things about book groups is that you can actually discuss things without prejudice. You can discuss things without having to sign up to some equality and diversity agenda. Um, and am I going to get shot for saying that, by the way? And you, you can. And also it doesn't cost. And I think all of those are tremendously important. We should be thinking about how we can move the subject forward outside the academy. Jeremy, it's lovely to see your socialist side coming out when you want open access for everyone. Um, before we begin talking about the book, A Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Right. Um, well, I'm 65. I am um, I grew up in, I was born in London, grew up there, left home to go to, to be a student. I was a student first at Cambridge, then at Oxford. Uh, taught at Durham from 1980 till the end of 95, eventually as professor at a day when being a professor meant something. Um, now I'm told every three-year-old is called professor. Um, and then in January 1996, uh, I went to Exeter and I remained there until I retired at the end of January 2020. And in retirement, as long as my health holds out, I intend to lecture and write as much as I can. And in fact, I've found it the last year extraordinarily productive. Wonderful. And this is obviously one of the books that's come out of that retirement project um, yes. of, 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 of thinking through um, a number of issues that, that in some ways you've written about before, but you're doing so now in a much more capacious, um, projected kind of way. What's the background to this book, Jeremy? Britain, Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021. Why did you choose Back this subject? 
Right. Well, the background was that there was a series, a four-part series, which Constable brought out about a decade ago. And they offered me, as it were, what you might think of as my period. I'm using my in inverted commas from the late 17th to the early 19th century. And I thought that was silly because I'd already written on it. I thought it would be nice if somebody else did it and Bill Gibson did it and did an excellent job on it. And I wanted deliberately, I always like to do things to sort of stretch myself. And I wanted to look at the later period. And I did that. And then I thought as I came up to retirement, some of the books I wanted to write would be completely new. And some of them would be to reconsider topics that I'd done before. So, for example, I brought out another book on newspaper history, which I had last done 20 years earlier, because both your own reflections change, but also much more significantly, the work of other people comes to the fore and you need to take on board or debate with it their perspectives. So I think history is an interim report whenever uh, I see on the back of a uh, book cover it's cl a claim that it's definitive. I know that it's garbage uh, because nobody can write definitive history. Um, and I'm taking part, I would like to think, in a debate with other people's perspectives, other people's interpretations, other people's evidence, and also how my own changes. And I, I think that the last 10 years in British history have been... Um, remarkably changeable, shall we say. I think that's a polite term. And what that does is encourages one to both look at the present, but also to rethink some of the perspectives that others and yourself have brought to the past. And that's what I was trying to do. Um, so there were both different ways of organising it. So, for example, the 1930s, because I wanted to split it roughly halfway, whereas I divided before at 1931, I decided I would di divide instead at 1939, which puts much more of a salience on international relations, which I think in a way is appropriate for where we are today. And... You know, I think that there has been so much coming out, it profited me a lot to start again and think about how I would do the subject. And, you know, if I'm still alive in 10 years' time, it would be nice to do the same, thinking not only what has come out, not only what has happened since, but what has come out since. Mm. Now, Jeremy, this this book, um, A Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021, it's a real work of judgment, isn't it? And balance. And I was greatly struck in the opening pages of the book by your contrast between Crystal, the Crystal Palace and the Millennium Dome, both in terms of um, architectural ambition, materials, but also the political projects that they represented. What were you getting to when you drew that distinction? Yeah, between the Great Exhibition and the Millennium Dome. Well, I think that they are both interesting because they were seen explicitly at the, at the time as expressions of identity and of aspiration. And also, I think, because they could be used by later historians, myself, but others could do exactly the same, to make, compare and contrast. And as you were aware... Um, I'm not particularly impressed uh, with the Blair project. I, in fact, in specific terms, I thought the um, 
Millennium Dome was rather vacuous, and I also thought it was very wrong. It had no real engagement with history. But leave that to one side. I, I thought that it's they you always should look at cultural um, objects, cultural moments as opportunities to see whether you can focus uh, broader. Uh, development. So I would say there's also a difference between the 1951 festival and the 1851 festival. And again, I think that the um, they say both good and bad. And what you really want to do is to outline the choice that you think, the informed choice for the reader to make, not to actually bash them over the head and say, you have to have this choice. Mm. One of the striking things. So, you know, I, I, can, I, can I just take up that point? Of course. I do not share in the widespread, almost orthodoxy, that the Attlee government was a marvellous period. Um, but, you know, you have to be aware that that view is uh, frequently held, and you at the same time have to offer something different, and then readers can make their own assessment of it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why um, I'm. I, you know, you might say I'm an iconoclast. I would say that I want to actually take um, um, the past into a partnership's the wrong word. I'm a bit tired at the moment. But in a sense, a partnership in the sense that you don't assume it is owned by any one interpretation at the present day. I think that's quite important. And that's why I've often been very unimpressed by what I call the standard BBC history or the standard television history, which tends to uh, offer you sumptuous visual images, but to give you just one narrative in which there is no opportunity to take different views. I've always thought that was a characteristic of the very poor television history done by Simon Sharma, for example, when he did the history of Britain. And I don't think that's right. I think it condescends to the audience. I think the audience is able to handle the fact that there are different views. So there are obviously very different views on the Attlee governments of 1945 to 51. And it's appropriate that you should offer them. And so what I've tried to do in this book, and I try to do more generally in my writing, is to engage with complexity. Now, uh, a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people, in fact, one of the more interesting reviews I had of my books years ago was by the Welsh scholar Peter Thomas, PDG Thomas, who said, you know, it's really not enough that Professor Black, after being the expert on this subject, it was on 18th century foreign policy, or, um, uh, you know, leaves us to make our mind up. Um, well, actually, you know, um, Peter Thomas, distinguished scholar, I think Peter Thomas was wrong. I think you should, you should offer the readers interpretations, but there are, readers will have differing views of the role of ideology in history, the role of material factors, the significance of religion, and so on. And it's inappropriate for me to say, it is this. I'm quite capable of telling people when they're wrong. Um, and indeed, yesterday I was involved in a debate on Intelligence Squared with chap from um, the University of Central Birmingham called Kalindi Andrews, who was completely uh, just didn't understand the history of the Atlantic and was offering, offering a whole set of specious comments about um, 
the, the rise of the West and arguing that it was fundamentally racist. So, you know, I, one is able to draw attention to conceptual, methodological, historiographical and empirical flaws in that. But that's not the same. The fact that you can draw attention to flaws in work is not the same as saying that your interpretation is the only one to offer. And mm. I would certainly not do that. And I suppose, Jeremy, one of the ways that you build these other voices into the project is by drawing down fiction writers, artists of various kinds, composers. What do those different types of cultural artefacts add to the narrative that you're developing here? Well, I think that's very true. I've always been fascinated. I mean, I'm particularly interested in the culture of print um, because obviously it's more readily quotable and... Uh, often, if you're dealing with writers in the last 150, 200, 250 years, you can read also their personal correspondence and have a, some idea of where they're coming from. Um, and as you may know, um, I have tried to write histories about individuals, their writing and how it interacts with the world. So I've got coming out uh, later this year, and uh, England in the age of Dickens and an England in the age of Christie. And um, beginning of next year, there'll be an England in the age of, uh, of um, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and the point about these is that as what one's trying to do is to find um, interpretations, not which sum up the age. You can't sum up the age. There's a multiplicity of experiences in any period and in any moment. But what you're trying to do is to find um, writers who capture part of the human conundrum of that period that seemed particularly notable to and interesting to contemporaries. Um, and fortunately in Britain, um, censorship had gone um, in uh, there was, of course, on the stage, there was still censorship, um, but censorship had gone in the uh, in the press, um, and censorship had gone in to all intents and purposes. I know you get the Chatterley trial and all the rest of it, but to all intents and purposes, most books could be published. So therefore, there's a wide range of material you can consider and look at and offer to the reader, because then they can make their own assessments of these texts. Mm. Now, it's striking that in your chapter on the culture of power, uh, you begin your discussion with... Uh, uh, the, the concept of the triumph of the market and obviously fiction writing musical writing cultural change all of that fits into this idea of of, of the marketplace and um, wh why did you make that connection between power and markets well thank you yes i'm glad you're it's interesting to deal with somebody who's really thought about the book yes it's a deliberate one i mean i do argue i would argue very strongly that capitalism and democracy are part of the same process, that capitalism is about giving the consumer power and democracy is about giving the consumer power in the political marketplace. And I would say what is cr crucially important in modern culture is when you have a relationship in which there's an anonymity of purchase. In other words, somebody is deciding to switch on a television programme or to read a book 
uh, because of their choice, not because they are being told what to do. Um, now, uh, were we to have, as it were, a monopoly for one state broadcaster, it would be rather different that we have a multiplicity of broadcasters. I'm not, I'm not sure whether, in fact, it was quite interesting. I once went to an occasion which was addressed by Tony Wedgwood Ben for the benefit of listeners. He was a very prominent, very left-wing British Labour politician. And he said that he thought socialism in Britain became impossible once there was commercial television, television with adverts, which came in in the mid-1950s. And, I mean, he meant in part... Uh, because it allowed the working class, in his eyes, to be led astray by the comfort of material goods and the quest for them. Actually, I suspect, because he was, in fact, like most left-wingers of that type, an authoritarian, I suspect he also resented and regretted the fact that there were people who were there, other than the BBC, who were offering a different point of view. So I think the marketplace, where where it is the customer, the individual purchaser that decides which book to read, which program to listen to. I think that's absolutely fundamental to democracy and absolutely fundamental to modern culture. Now, the sad truth is that in Britain, the state repeatedly intervenes against that. So the state uh, as it were, determines through its purchasing and patronage that there are particular art, um, artistic and cultural products that it likes and that it regards as benign or appropriate or exemplary. And, of course, it pushes those forward. Uh, and I don't actually find that particularly attractive. And I think it's an aspect of us having a quasi-corporatist, quasi-totalitarian, authoritarian maybe a better term, um, uh, sort of governmental mechanism. But whilst there are individuals who are allowed to, as it were, purchase what they want in terms of cultural product, then I think we have the triumph of the marketplace. And I think that's a good thing, including if nobody buys my books. I still think, <laughs> I still think it's a good thing. So, Jeremy, uh, at one point in the book, you reflect on your own experience growing up, I think, in Parkside Drive. I've no idea if that's a a genuine address or a, oh, a, a, genuine a, a metaphorical address. address. My, my mother still lives there. I <laughs> see. But um, I'm curious how you relate what you just, I think you hint as the homogenization of, of different types of housing and different kinds of lived experience in suburbia with uh, how, how you would fit that with the increasing diversification of opportunity through the market. As, as we look at the long arc, especially, I suppose, through the central part of the 20th century, are we seeing the homogenization of lived experience or rather its diversification? Well, that's interesting. I think we've got both elements, haven't we? And we've got both elements also further complicated by ident identity narratives. So there's the question of experience and there's the question of what people are told their experience is, which is not quite the same thing. Um, as far as experience is concerned, there are benign aspects of it. Um, there is still poverty in the country, but there is a far lower percentage of the population who live in poverty than was the situation 50, 80, 100 years ago. That is to the good. Um, it is to the good that um, the, as it were, uh, the social um, sort of products of education, health and so on, 
are widely available um, and are free at the point of deliver uh, free at the point of delivery. I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think it is a good thing that there has been a degree of homogenization in the sense that the more extreme um, policies that were um, of state control that were endorsed by Labour from the sort of uh, late 40s until the early 90s have at the present moment been parked aside. And Mr Corbyn, you know, failed in the general election attempt of uh, 2019. So to that extent, there's been a measure of homogenization. But in terms of diversity, um, large-scale immigration has had complicating factors. There are most immigrants have sought to integrate with society, to have brought a lot to it, have offered both their own efforts and an understanding of the host society. But it has to be said that there are groups for where this is totally failed and where there has been a rejection of the values of host society, particularly in terms of attitudes towards women. Um, and I think that that is really unfortunate. Um, and I think it is an aspect of spreading sectarianism. Um, so that, I think, is really unfortunate. And I also think that the language which one is seeing at the present moment in terms of issues such as sexuality, gender, race, um, uh, in terms of division um, and in terms of a um, sort of dichotomy, um, I think that is definitely not a helpful uh, pattern in a society where one is only going to be able to operate this society on the basis of mutual respect and an understanding that other people's views may be different and that they have a valid right to hold those views just as you have a valid right to hold them. And I fear that that has diminished greatly um, in the last few years, you have the farce of having members of parliament saying they would never sit down with a Tory. Um, the members of parliament under the British system are supposed to represent everybody in their constituency, irrespective of whether they voted for them or not. Um, and I think that there is a, a coarsening of the uh, mood and tone in British politics, I mean, you and I work in universities, you will know, you may not feel safe to say this, but I can safely say this, though I've been threatened with the loss of my emeritus chair, much I care, for making comments that the university doesn't like. Um, the, um, but I would say that there was a genuine willingness to accept people having differing views during the, uh, the bulk of my university career, but in the last few years, I think that has receded greatly. And I think it's been replaced by a stridency and a, um, a intolerance, which has no place in the academic world. Um, and, you know, you might say, who cares what the academics think and who cares what the universities think? Well, unfortunately, given that more people go to the to university, more people are now, as it were, um, sort of under the aegis of this form of indoctrination. Mm. Well, Jeremy, let's talk about one of the issues that often crops up in, in those kinds of conversations, and that is the issue of empire, the breakup of empire, 
the dismantling of the United Kingdom. Of course, your book is about Britain, um, but this is Britain within the United Kingdom. Britain stays intact. The United Kingdom begins to change, especially after 1922. So the, the book is organised around 1939 as a, 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 as a kind of a hinge between, the, the, uh, between its two halves. As you... As you wrote the book and thought about some of the principal themes and the impact of the war upon um, changing views of politics, but also the impact of the war upon empire, did you did you think that Britain could have come out of the war experience in a stronger position than it did? Oh, that's a very, that's a very uh, interesting one. Listeners ought to be aware one has no idea what is coming. Uh, well, let's first of all start with the obvious point. It could have come out in a lot worse position. Let's start off with the very obvious point, either by being subjugated to Nazi Germany through occupation, uh, through um, allied to Nazi Germany, through defeat and then negotiation, which would have been unattractive, to put it mildly, or thirdly, a very different form of uh, situation um, with Soviet forces further west in Europe, maybe occupying much of the European Landmass. So again, that wouldn't have been very attractive for Britain. So it could have been much worse. Could it have been better? Well, I suppose so, yes. I mean, you could argue that if France hadn't fallen in 1940, then the situation might well have been, you know, we're in, as you know, I've written a book on counterfactuals, and that includes counterfactuals about World War II. Uh, there was nothing inevitable about France falling. The assumption might well have been, was in many senses, that it would be like the previous World War, that the, uh, that the French would hold and there would be a Western Front. So uh, that was a factor. There was no no reason to believe that the Soviet Union would ally with Germany. It did in 1939, which meant that from the fall of Poland until Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's essentially fighting a one-front war. That is very, very serious. And if anything um, causes our problems in um, for much of World War II in those very difficult early months, it is the policy of the Soviet Union. Um, the United States could have taken a different viewpoint. The United United States was the great appeaser power. It was the world's leading economy, and it consistently appeased the Germans in the late 30s. It did nothing to the help of various neutral powers um, when they were attacked by Germany, and it left all the onus on Britain and France. So the United States bears, I think, a lot of the responsibility for the mess. Um, so if you're looking at the situation in 39, 40, 41, it could well have been different. Um, thereafter, as I've argued, once... I mean, you've moved from, I've, I've argued this in books on, you know, I did my rethinking World War II. Um, I, I, and indeed, my, I've got a book coming out on strategy in World War II. I would argue that World War II up to the end of 1941 is very much an open struggle. You don't know which powers are going to go to conflict with whom, and therefore it's very, very difficult to judge strategy and indeed subsequently counterfactuals. Thereafter, there are possibilities. I mean, there are, um, Soviet-German peace feelers in 42 and 43. Um, but the, the, the practicality is the two sides are much more set. Um, and from that perspective, 
Uh, Britain is, is on the, as it were, the stronger side. It's still necessary to beat the Germans and the Japanese, and the improvement in fighting quality is, is really significant to that. Um, but I think the war itself is less dangerous than it had for Britain than it had been um, in the first uh, two and a half years. Mm. Well, Jeremy, the second part of the book, um, Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021, talks a lot both about soft power and hard power. Soft power, the culture of the 60s, exporting music culture, all of those kinds of things. Hard power very much in the context of Cold War, um, up to the Falklands War, um, the Northern Ireland conflict, and so on and so on. As you balanced up soft power and hard power, which do you think is more helpful in understanding what was happening to Britain through that period? Right. We're about to get the grandfather clock going, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, give me a pause. I think we should leave that on the rear. <laughs> the, the, give the sound, the sound of the past, if you like. In fact, literally so in this one, because it's quite, it is an old grandfather clock. Um, I think they're both significant. I mean, the Cold War could well have got very hot um, as late as 1983. Large scale conflict. Um, in Europe is a serious possibility. Um, and it is naive and to ignore that if you're looking at that period. Just as incidentally, um, uh, an area that I think is really naive to, to ignore, and it's very, I think this has been highlighted by politics in the last five years at the global level, is that of foreign intervention in politics. I mean, I think it's been naive in the extreme to write about uh, British politics and British society over the last 70 years without um, thinking about uh, the interventions or attitudes of um, uh, foreign powers. I mean, I think to give you an obvious example, um, I was listening to the launch, uh, which was a Zoom launch of Simon Heffer's first volume of his Chips Channon diaries. Here we go. Here comes the clock. There we go. Um, and <laughs> what interested me is that he and the other discussant, Michael Gove, were, you know, commenting on uh, on Channon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and nobody thought to really raise what's, I think, a very interesting question. Channon was the parliamentary private secretary to the government's foreign policy business manager in the House of Commons. And he was a, you know, um, very keen on, let's put it mildly, on the Nazis. I've met Hitler and all the rest of it. You know, what does the Abwehr, the SD, the Italian military intelligence, um, the, Intelli the German and Italian diplomatic traffic have to say about him? I mean, I think that's actually more interesting than what Shannon has to say about who he has dinner with. Um, and I think that the same is worth considering on post-1945 British politics. There is a hard edge to it that's significant. I mean... You know, people tend to talk about Mrs. Thatcher and forget that uh, during the Mrs. Thatcher administration, the attempt to blow her up by the IRA was with obviously 
um, uh, explosives supplied by the Eastern Bloc. It was, in fact, quite an important moment in the Cold War, um, uh, etc., etc. I mean, the National Union of Miners' strike was linked to the Eastern Bloc. And people tend to forget these sort of things or they leave them out of their history. Uh, but it is an important element of international and domestic history, and it will remain so. Um, now, as far as soft power, yes, of course, soft power on the global scale. I mean, the British are principally held, helped, of course, by uh, their language being international. Um, they're helped by the extent to which um, many of the more significant countries in the world use uh, English. Um, and they're helped by a relatively free and liberal society, which has played a major role in things like publication, the uh, music, um, in making its products available and turning them into commercially attractive formats. Um, so, yes, that's an important aspect of British influence. Um, and one of the interesting aspects of it is that commerce has played a key role in it. Um, and whereas, if you like, the kind of high cultural aspect of it the, uh, um, has not always been so successful, though it might have been more worthy mm. in inverted commas. Jeremy, you mentioned a few moments ago Tony Blair. And one of the elements of Britishness we associate with the Tony Blair years is the idea of Cool Britannia again tapping into the music culture and cu uh, cultural uh, so so soft power um, uh, of the day. Can Cool Britannia ever be recovered? Oof. I neither know nor care, I have to say, Crawford. Does that sound awful? I mean, I actually thought there was something curiously vapid about the Blair administration. Um, a very spurious... Um, it was, um, I mean, he was obviously a narcissist of the most extreme type. Um, and he believed a lot of his own propaganda about putting history away, about becoming somebody who was a modernizer, who could transform things. Well, what's sad is that he enjoyed three significant general election victories and didn't do an enormous amount with them for good, you know, in terms of either uh, reforming or improving our uh, infrastructure, uh, tackling uh, enormous issues of inequality, which has now risen up. I mean, with I thought Theresa May did an excellent job at drawing attention to the plight of much of the white working class. Well, what's interesting is how much that was due to um, Blair's policy of bringing in people freely from Eastern Europe and really not being interested in the culture and legacy of those communities. So I think a lot of the issues or problems of the present day, you might have your own views on whether it would be a good or a bad thing for Scotland or Wales to become independent. I, you know, that's a matter for ultimately for the Scottish and Welsh electors, in my view. But the I certainly think that Blair was rather hilariously like David Cameron. In other words, he went in for a tactical device. He thought that creating the, the Scottish Parliament would, as it were, keep Scotland in the Union 
and keep Labour strong in Scotland and therefore strong in Westminster. And, you know, he was, you know, behind the, uh, the you can trust me, I'm Tony. He was a man of sort of cold-eyed cynicism and lack of value. Um, but it didn't work. And it was rather funny. I mean, in a sense, it's like David Cameron and his referendum. I mean, you've got two essentially spivvy characters um, who um, imagine that they... Uh, can impose on others simply because they can produce a narrative. Um, so I don't really care whether, you know, you might well have some politician come along and either Labour or Conservative or any other political party and announce they have cruel Britannia or cool Caledonia or cool whatever, whatever unit they want to have. Um, I think we're entitled to treat them with the contempt they deserve. I mean, do you know anybody honestly who thought of Peter Mandelson other than with complete contempt? And for the benefit of American you, um, uh, lead, uh, listeners, uh, Peter Mandelson was Tony Blair's Rasputin. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone will ever come up with cool Northern Ireland, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. Maybe they will as a sales <laughs> device. I mean, but, you know, I mean, I think the people in Ulster... Um, uh, will have, uh, of all communities, will have the common sense to see through such nonsense. I think the problem is that there was a kind of, it was particularly metropolitan in England, there was a kind of metropolitan stupidity which went in for this kind of Blairite uh, um, sort of rhetoric. Well, Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time today. I'm conscious oh, of I'm that. I'm quite happy to go on. I mean, there are more actions to put in more <laughs> reputations. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I'm scared of. Um, but it's been great to talk to you about this book, A Brief History of Britain, 1851 to 2021. And thank you for your time. It's been great. My pleasure, Crawford. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you, you next time. You what else I was writing, Crawford. <laughs> you usually do that. Am I so predictable? Okay, what else are you writing, Jeremy? Well, in that series, um, there is coming out a history of the Atlantic, a history of the Caribbean, and a history of Germany, uh, as well as one on strategy in World War Two, And they're all finished and accepted and in production. Fantastic. Good. So which, which one will come next, do you know, in terms of the bookshelf? Um, yes, I think I do know. Um, I think the next one out is the Caribbean. It may well be strategy in World War II. They're the two in the next tranche. And then um, in other uh, works which um, people might find of interest, um, I have a history of the British Army from 1688 to 1815 coming out this year. I have a history of logistics coming out this year. I have a short history of France coming out this year. And I have um, uh, a short history of war coming out this year. And that's not exhaustive. That, there are others. So I have had a very productive time. And um, I feel that I know people think it's ridiculous. It isn't ridiculous. I spend an enormous amount of time thinking about uh, what to say and how to say it and redrafting and all the rest of it, because I'm not a natural stylist. But I do feel there is an intellectual architecture there in what I'm writing. These pieces are designed to fit together, to offer a deliberate complexity on the past 
and also to put an enormous question mark against the progressivist nostrums that dominate so much of the historical uh, imagination in the academic world. Great. Well, your book in the Caribbean might be as close as many of us get to a summer holiday this year, so something to look forward Ditto to. Ditto for me. Ditto for me. <laughs> well, Jeremy, thank you for your time, um, and thanks for coming on to the show to talk about this book, A Brief History of Britain, 1851-21. to 21. And thank you for your time, and take care. A pleasure. Thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.